Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to start. It says, And getting into a boat, he, this is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, after the healing the two, two men who had the demons, as we saw last week, uh, Jesus and his disciples get back in a boat and they cross back over the Sea of Galilee. And the scripture says, to his own city. Now, don't be in a hurry to answer this, but think about it for a minute. What is his own city, according to the scriptures? When it says he went back to his own city, what city would this be? Nazareth. That's what most people think, but it's not Nazareth. It's actually, remember, Galilee is not a city. Galilee is an area. It's Capernaum. You're going to see that as we look at the scriptures tonight, but I'm going to kind of take you back. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, he had already been at the beginning of his ministry. If you remember way back when we were doing chapter 4, he had gone into Capernaum and he'd done some miracles and, and all. But then he went back to his hometown. And in Matthew chapter 4, look at what it says in verses 12 through 17. In Matthew 4, 12, the scripture says, Now when he, this is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, this is John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when it says he went to his own city, it's not talking about Caper uh, sorry, Nazareth, where he grew up. It's talking about Capernaum, where his headquarters were, if you will, for his ministry. As you know, he didn't do most of his work in Jerusalem. He did most of his work up in Capernaum in Galilee. He would make inroads, if you will, or trips down into Ju Judah to, to, uh, uh, Judea to do some work. But most of the time he did what he did up around the Sea of Galilee and his headquarters, if you will. So when it says his, uh, it went to his own city, his headquarters were, was Capernaum. You'll see that clearly come out as we look at some other accounts of this same story. Now also, if you go back to Luke chapter 4, you'll remember the last time he was in Nazareth, they did what? What did they try to do to him? They tried to kill him. Exactly. In Luke chapter 4, look at verse 16 and following. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you'll quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down that cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So if you remember, he didn't spend his time in Nazareth anymore. He left there after he had been rejected. He spent most of his time in Capernaum. And he would, like I say, make trips because of the Passover and at those times down into Judea. 
If you remember near the end of his life, they tried to kill him. And that's why he then no longer did as much ministry in, uh, in Judea. But then when it was time for him to die, he then went back to Judea. And the disciples were like, last time we were there, they tried to kill you. Why are you going back? And as you know, he was going back because it was time to die. So when the scripture says back here in Matthew chapter 9, in that he went back to his own city, it's not Nazareth, it's Capernaum. All right. Now, this story that I uh, just read to you in chapter nine of Matthew, verses one through eight, and that we're studying tonight is actually a very famous story for a lot of us who grew up in Sunday school. This is the story about the man who was healed by Jesus after the friends lowered him through the roof. Y'all remember that? You remember growing up and hearing the story about the four friends that cut the hole in the person's roof and lowered him down? This is actually that story. It's interesting for the fact that you remember last week we brought out the fact that Matthew gave more detail and said there were two men who were demon possessed and there were two blind men where Luke and Mark actually only talked about one. Yet in this instance, as I'm about to show you, Mark and Luke talk about the hole being cut in the roof, but Matthew doesn't even mention it. Now, again, like you pointed out last week, Allison, that's one of the further proofs of the reality of Scripture in the fact that as these different people wrote about these episodes, their, their, their reports, if you will, are not word for word. If you know anything about police work and when they're doing investigative work and they're, they're checking with witnesses, if everybody says word for word the exact same thing, the police go, red flag, something's going on here. This is rehearsed. But if the stories all corroborate, but they're slightly different, it's believable. And this is one of the evidence of the scriptures being real. These guys all don't bring out the exact same parts of the story. And in this instance, Matthew doesn't even mention the fact that there's a hole in the roof. It just talks about this man, the paralytic was brought to Jesus. So let's look at Mark's account and Luke's account again. Because like I, I've been hopefully trying to teach you, when you study a passage of scripture, especially in the Gospels, go look at the other Gospel accounts of it if there are some, because that will be very, very beneficial for you, because you'll get more of the story. So let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and hear Mark's account. Because Mark's going to bring out some interesting things as well. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and when he, again, Jesus, returned to where? Ah, if we had read Mark's account, we would have got that answer right. Do you see the danger of reading just Matthew and assuming you know when it says it went to his own city? You would have assumed it was Nazareth, but it's not. It's Capernaum. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when the, they could not get, him, get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they lit down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. So, and he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jump over to Luke chapter 5. Let's look at Luke's account real quick. Again, there's benefit. And here in all the different accounts, because we get a clearer picture of all that went on. Luke 5, we'll start in verse 17. It says, on, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So we see from Mark and Luke's account that not only was there a lot of people there, but there were so many people there that they couldn't even get in the house to where Jesus was. And the people were actually gathered around on the outside. And so to get to Jesus, they get up on the roof and they cut holes. Actually, the Bible says they removed the tiles and they lowered him through the roof to get to Jesus. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, I've got to be honest with you, I've been preaching for a long time. And I actually have had one episode in my life where I experienced something similar to this. Not me healing anybody or them cutting a hole in the roof. But this conference center that we were just talking about that you guys are going to be going to in August that I'm going to be at, they have a big tabernacle where they held their morning services and there'll be, I don't know, four or five hundred people there on that morning for that. But then in the evenings, whenever I preach in the evening, they have a chapel that seats 100, 150. Well, one time as I was there teaching on the book of Revelation, so many people came to the Sunday night services and the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that they actually overflowed that little chapel. And people were standing in, inside along the walls, and that wasn't enough. So they opened the back doors of the little chapel so people could stand from the outside of the building and listen from outside. And they opened all the windows on the side, and people stood around that little chapel and were listening from outside the building. It was an amazing night to see so many people coming to hear the Word of God that they just were all uh, listening everywhere around. Now, again, nobody came through the roof, and I didn't heal anybody, but... But it, it, this is what was going on here. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 9. And you see in verse 2, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to talk about that, but I want to come back to it after we deal with verse 4. There's something in verse 4 that I think will help us to go to, back to verse 2. In verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your heart? And so what I want to talk to you about is notice how Jesus knew what they were thinking. Now, a lot of us know that Jesus knows our thoughts, but a lot of us don't know that Jesus knows our thoughts. Remember last week I told you Satan's not for you, but I had to keep saying it because as much as we always say, oh, we know Satan's not for us, we really don't know it because if we did, we wouldn't fall prey to his lies as much as we do. I also want to talk to you about the fact that God knows your thoughts. Go to Psalm 139. Let me show you what David says about it in verses 1 through 4. Psalm 139, look at verses 1 through 4. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, I didn't say it. And subconsciously think that God didn't know. Folks, let me just tell you. God knows. The Bible actually says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So I'm just going to tell you, and I'm going somewhere with this, because you're going to see this tonight. God knows everything you think. And he still likes you actually loves us. But listen closely. Don't think that if you just keep it inside, God doesn't know. Actually, God knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. By the, folks, I'm just going to remind you of the scriptures. He knows the day of your birth. He knows the day of your death. He knows everything about you. The Bible says he's kept all your tears in a jar. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Everything about what's coming up in your life, he knows everything about it. That's why when he met Nathaniel, he said, oh, I saw you before you were when you were under the tree when Philip went to get you. And the guy was like, for real? Peter says, I, you don't know about me, Jesus. I, I'm going to go to death for you. I, I'll go to prison for you. Actually, before the rooster even crows tomorrow, you're going to know, uh, you're going to deny you know me three times. He knows everything about us. Now, listen, as you're going to see in our lives, he's going to continually keep putting us in situations to pull what he knows is really there out. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And he's trying to take you deeper in your walk of faith. 
He knows what you're thinking. How many people have I known over the years as a pastor that have been mad at God, but they would never say it. And they think because they've kept it in that God doesn't know they're mad. He knows. He knows everything about you and he loves you and he likes you. Don't think that if you just think it, it's not God doesn't know. He knows. So just be honest with him and say, Lord, I don't trust you as much as I thought I did. Lord, I am a little bit worried about this. Don't pretend like you're spiritualer than you are. He already knows. And he loves it when you're honest, because if you're honest, then he can take you to where he wants you to be. But if you keep pretending that's not a problem, you won't let him deal with it. All right. So with that in mind, let me show you a couple of passages that show the depth of Jesus's knowing our thoughts. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verses 22 through 25. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? In other words, is this the prophesied guy? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts... He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will withstand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, I'm going to stop there because we're going to begin when we get to Matthew 12. We're going to be dealing with this in more detail. But look closely at this. The scripture says that when he healed this guy, the Pharisees heard it. When they heard it, they said it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. But the scripture then says Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, isn't that interesting? How come they spoke it, but Jesus knew what they were thinking? Nope, definitely had to think it to speak it. They spoke it to each other. They spoke it to each other. They were whispering in the back of the room, if you will. By the way, you guys probably do that about me half the time and think, <laughs> there he goes again. Or Allison sitting in the back, she doesn't hide it real well. She, make, she laughs at my grammar mistakes that I make and all this stuff. But listen, even if you whisper it in the back rooms, he knows. He knows. And so I just want you to, again, realize there's nowhere you go that he's not there. There's nothing you look at. Even if you're home by yourself and nobody else is there, he knows. He sees. A lot of times, those of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with sin the most when nobody else is around. But he's there. He's always there. Even if you whisper something, he knows it. He knows it. So let that truth sink in. Not so that you'll be afraid, but I'll say, God, okay, this is who I really am, but I don't want to be this person. You began this good work in me. Would you please finish it? I want to see this change. I want my heart to change. You're showing me things about myself that I was pretending wasn't there because I didn't really say it or I whispered it. Now you're showing me the depth of who I am. I'd like to see you do this work in me and change. Go to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now when he, again Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. How many times have you thought to yourself when you heard a message, man, I wish so-and-so was here? How many times have you thought, Lord, if you only knew what that person was really like? He knows. He knows. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. And he's doing his work and his purposes and his timing. But look closely at this passage. I, I dealt with he knew their thoughts first before we got to when he saw their faith. Because in this situation, not only did he know their thoughts... He knew that their faith wasn't real. 
If you and I were to read chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. If we had just stopped there and never had verses 24 and 25 written for us, we would all believe these people were saved, right? They saw what he was doing. They believed in his name. But Jesus knows whether or not it's real faith. We don't. We've talked about that as we've been dealing with this whole issue of counting numbers there's a danger in counting numbers because just because they walked an aisle doesn't mean that we, they're really going to be in heaven. There's nothing wrong with celebrate people and responding to the gospel, but we don't know until time goes on whether or not that salvation is real, whether or not it was real faith, but Jesus knows. And he knows not only the thoughts, he knows the level of faith that you have. He knows whether or not you've really put your trust in him for salvation or if that faith was just lip service. These people honor me with their lips, he said. But what? Their hearts are far from me. They, he knows where you really are. Oh, by the way, as we're going to get to tonight, he also knows the level of faith that you have. You might have enough faith that he's blessed you with to be saved. But he's trying to increase your faith. He's wanting to grow your knowledge of him, grow your understanding. And he knows the level of faith that, that you have. Now, as we just saw here in John 2, and also in our story in Matthew, Jesus knows how much faith we really have. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. In verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, not just the paralytic, but the guys carrying him, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So, again, this is where Mark and Luke help us. There's a little bit more information in Mark and Luke that will help us answer this question. How did these men demonstrate their faith? They, exactly. They, were, they had so much faith that Jesus was going to do what they wanted him to do. They actually made a hole in someone's roof. By the way, I just had my roof replaced two weeks ago. Wouldn't be too excited about that. We never really hear a preacher preach the sermon on the guy whosever house it was, how he felt about this situation right here. But think about it. These people, and that's what we want to talk about a little bit tonight, is the fact that one of the ways that we can demonstrate our faith is not just say we have faith, but to actually act like we have faith. And that's what the Bible says is the measurement that we should be looking for. God already knows how much faith we have. We're not trying to prove anything to him. He already knows, you know. I think, honestly, when Peter had denied the Lord and had already told the Lord, I love you the most, and then he, of course, denied that he knew him. After Jesus rose from the dead, we see the story in John 21 of Jesus looking on the shore as they're out fishing. And when they realize it's Jesus, Peter jumps in the water and tries to be the first one back to shore. Doesn't want to wait for the boat towing fish. He tries to be the first one to shore. In other words, I want to prove to Jesus I'm the, I love him the most and I want to get there. But Jesus already knows how much faith we have. He already knows how much we love him. But for our sake... And for the sake of the people around us, the question is, how is our faith demonstrated? Is it through how much we say we have faith or is it through our actions? Go to James chapter 2. This will be a great way for us to know whether or not we have real faith. James chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 26. By the way, I'm about to read to you a section of Scripture that actually almost made the book of James not make the canon of Scripture. When the early church fathers were wrestling over which was the Word of God and which wasn't the Word of God, because as you probably know, there were a lot of books written at that time that weren't inspired. Satan tried to get some books in there that weren't. And so they used really, really strict measurements on whether or not it was the Word of God. Did it contradict anything in the rest of Scripture that we knew to be Scripture? Who was it that wrote? That's why the book of Hebrews almost didn't make it, because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And because of that, it almost didn't make the canon of Scripture. And James says some stuff here that they thought he was contradicting Paul, because Paul says we're saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. Well, listen to what James says, and you'll see he's not disagreeing with Paul. He's clarifying it. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works or evidence of that faith through action? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works or actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so, folks, what I want you to see and I want you to hear is this. If God already knows what level of faith you have and you think you're, as I've said before, you think you're here when you're actually here. And God wants to move you to here when you think you're here, but you're actually here. What's he got to do before he can move you to where he wants you to be? He's got to show you where you actually are, right? So he's going to be putting you in situations. He already knows how much faith you have. Do you trust God? Oh, yeah, I trust God. We'll see. We'll see. See, it's easy to say, but it's hard to do. This past weekend, I was up in Michigan working with a church that I've been working with for years. And two awesome things happened this weekend. Uh, the pastor has, he's a bivocational pastor, and he's been going through a possible job change. He was losing one job and might be, and he wasn't sure if he's going to be able to continue pastoring and all these things. And he got up in front of the church and just shared, you know what? I thought I trusted God, and I do in a lot of ways, but I found out through this whole process that I was weak in my faith. And the pastor admitted to the people, I was worried. I was scared, but God grew my faith through this, and he shared what God did and how he has a job now, and everything's fine, and everything's going to continue, and actually, God blessed him with more money and better situation, and then when it was time for the offering, one of the elders got up, and everybody knows this elder, and he loves to farm, but the weather up in Michigan has been so bad, they haven't been able to even rototill hardly yet because of the rain, and the rain, and the rain, and he got up, and when it was time for the offering, and have prayer for the offering, he shared about how God was showing him, I thought I was here, <laughs> but now I realize I'm here. God's not mad, but he's going to continually put you in situations where he's going to say, I know you say you trust me, prove it. You see, saying you have faith is, is not enough. If it's not backed up by actions, you really don't have faith. Now, I'm just going to speak to you real quickly in the area of giving. The Bible actually talks about us giving to God a tenth of whatever we've given. You see, we say, wait a minute, Jim, we're not under law. We're under grace. That tithing stuff's not for the church. Whoa, 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 back up. Be careful. Let me show you a couple of things. I can show you two places in the scripture where people gave a tenth of what they had before the law even came. When Jacob met God at the, at the, the, the ladder there, he came out of that instance and said, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything I have. That was even before the law came. And we even know that the Bible says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek before the law. Don't get sucked into all this. Well, we're not to tithe anymore. We're under grace. Oh, be careful. Because didn't we already study in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus, when he began the Sermon on the Mount and he gets into chapter 5 and chapter 6, the law says, but then I say. He actually took the law and then he made it even tougher. If the law even said we were to give 10%, what do you think Jesus is going to say to us? Seven times seven. Exactly. He's going to say more. And you always see all through the scriptures about tithes and offerings. Folks, I want to challenge you. You don't set the test for God. The Bible says don't test God. Yet there are plenty of places where God says, test me. But see, listen, God gets to set the test. God says, trust me in this. Don't we see him in the book of Malachi? Test me in this. So see if I won't open for you the windows of heaven and give you more than you can ever imagine. There are places I'm going to challenge you. You say you got trust, you got faith in God. I'm going to challenge you. Where he tells you to give more, do it. Some of you might not even be giving a tenth. That's just the beginning. I'm going to challenge you. If he's speaking to you, do you say you have faith? 
See, it's real easy to talk, talk about it. You can believe that that airplane is going to actually fly somebody somewhere. It's nothing to get on it, right? In the same way, I want you to be willing to do what God tells you to do when it comes to, to money. Again, we don't set the test. Okay, God, I'm going to trust you in this, and you better. No, no, no. You don't set the test. If he's spoken, though, and he set the test, See what, he, see what he does. Watch what he does. And I just want to leave it at that. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 15 through 20. Again, this is all tied to the fact that now he not only knows your thoughts, he knows the level of your faith. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets, he said, who come to you, Chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophet who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, you'll recognize false teachers by their actions. There are preachers out there today that talk a lot about the word. Preaching love and faith and joy and peace and all this stuff. But watch out for those preachers who know how to say the right thing. But when you deal with them, they're cantankerous, argumentative, abusive, power hungry, interested in money more than they are people. You understand what I'm saying? We've all been in Christian life long enough to know there are people out there that know how to talk a good game, but they don't live it. And the Bible says God already knows the level of our faith. But at the same time, the way we'll know whether or not we really have faith, because we don't know the level of our faith, do we? No. And whether or not we'll recognize whether or not other people's level of their faith is by our actions. And God is going to continually, until he takes us home, keep putting us in the next situation, in the next situation. It could be health. It could be relational. It could be whatever it is. He's going to keep testing. Are you going to listen to me? Are you going to forgive that person that I told you to forgive? Or are you just going to think that you're not going to forgive them? Well, you may say that you listen to me, but that doesn't mean that you do. Well, let me take you to that passage. Go to Matthew chapter 7 and look at verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Now, by the way, as I'm speaking, if the Spirit of God's talking to you and pointing out some things in your life where you're not trusting Him because you're not willing to forgive or you're not willing to, to give the money that He's telling you to give, He's not mad. He loves you. He knows the level of your faith. He knows what you're thinking. He knows how you've rationalized it. But He's going to keep trying to get you to see what He already sees. He's doing that with all of us. And he does it because he loves us. And he's trying to take us to a deeper walk. Let me show you. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 3 through 11. Listen to how it's worded here. <clears throat> God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be become partakers of the divine nature. Don't miss this. You've already been given everything you need for life and godliness, but that doesn't mean it's being manifested yet. For this very reason, all right, let me back up here, uh, by which he's granted to us his very great and precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are what? increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Make sure you're saved. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Just because you're saved... And you've been given everything that you need for life and godliness doesn't mean that it's being manifested yet. And God's not expecting it all to be manifested at once. That's why in the book of James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, the Bible says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Know how the farmer waits for the early and the latter rains. Godly fruit is not produced quickly. It's produced over time. And then he says, You therefore be patient. The Lord is at hand. And then he goes on and he says, Oh, and by the way, while I'm working on you, which isn't always comfortable, don't grumble against one another. And don't judge one another. Because the judge, the real judge, is standing at the door. Folks, as we're in this process of waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, he is in the process of trying to take us deeper in our walks with him. And what he's going to do is say, I know things about you you don't know. You're not as there as you think you are. I don't want you to think about your brother or your sister. I want you to think about you and let me lovingly show you where you really are. I'm going to do it in a myriad of ways. I'm going to have to have you deal with a, a relationship issue that you're going to have to listen to me and trust me and be obedient to me when you may not want to. I'm going to have you deal with a health issue where you might be diagnosed with cancer or whatever. And I'm going to show you where you really are faith wise when it comes to me. I may do it financially. I may do it with all different things. Your washing machine might break when you get home tonight and you just got tires on the car. You're going to be going through all these things. This, does this sound familiar with anybody's lives? Over and over. That's what it means to be the child of God, he's in the process. And listen, he already knows what level of faith you have. So you don't got to try to prove to him anything or anything like that. He already knows and he loves you. But he also wants to take you deeper and to increase your faith. One of the best prayers in the Bible is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that. The man was like, you know what? I kind of do believe, but I also know I really don't. By the way, that's me. I look so spiritual when I'm up here sharing you the scriptures and the spirit of God is using the gift he's given me to show you all these things. And you think, oh, Jim knows the Bible inside and out. He's got it all figured out. No, I'm just like you. I still question. I still doubt. I still worry. I still get anxious. And when he tells me to do stuff, I don't always say yes, sir, right away. I'm like, I'm not sure. But he does it for our good. He knows our hearts. Now, the Pharisees go back to Matthew. Actually, go to Mark's account. In chapter 2, the Pharisees were upset because Jesus forgave this man's sins. And if Jesus weren't God, they would be right. Because only the one sinned against has the right to forgive. If you did something against him, I can't forgive him. He's got to be the one, you know what I'm saying? Or I can't forgive you. You, whoever had been sinned against is the one who has to forgive. And what did David said when he would say in Psalm 51 when he said, uh, when he sinned with Bathsheba, I sinned against you and you only have I sinned. So the, 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 the Pharisees, look at Mark chapter 2 here, verses 5 through 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And again, if Jesus weren't God, they would be right. Because only Jesus could forgive this man's sins. Only God can forgive this man's sins. But Jesus knows that he's God, and he knows they don't know that he's God. So he then says to him, okay, let me ask you a question, guys. It sounds like you think I'm just throwing these words out. Which is easier to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven? Or to tell someone to get up and walk? Of course, their answer would be, it would be, it's real easy to say your sins are forgiven because how are we to know? But if you tell this man to get up and walk, we'll be able to see whether or not your words have any authority and have any power. That was the whole test that Jesus put out. And so to show that he had the authority to forgive sins, he told this man to get up and walk, and he did. By the way, which was easier for Jesus to do? 
get up and walk was easier for Jesus to do. Don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus' forgiving his sins might have seemed easy to say, but it wasn't easy to do. It was easier for Jesus to tell the man to get up and walk than it was for him to say, forgive, uh, your sins are forgiven. Go to Isaiah 53. Don't ever think that it was easy or is easy for Jesus to forgive your sins. It was the hardest thing he ever did. In Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read to you verses 4 through 6 and then verses 11 and 12. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 and 11 and 12. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Go to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, be, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was definitely in their eyes easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, than to say, rise up and walk. But it was actually easier for Jesus just to tell the man to get up and walk than it was for him to forgive his sins. Go to Matthew chapter 9, and let's go to verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, as we look at Mark and Luke's account of this next episode, we will learn something pretty cool. And I want to take a second here to do this. I know what time it is, and I need to move fast to keep you up to date with where we were last night. So go real quickly to Mark chapter 2. I want you to see if you can tell me what is different between Mark's account and Luke's account compared to Matthew's. In Mark chapter 2, look at verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, this is Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, lit sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jump over real quickly to Luke chapter 5. Let's look at Luke's account. In Luke 5, Luke verses 27 through 32. Luke 5, 27, after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Did anybody catch the difference? I heard it. Mark and Luke call him Levi. But Matthew calls himself Matthew. Now here's why, and I'm going to show it to you from Scripture. Matthew was Matthew's new name that Jesus gave to him. Levi was the name that he had prior to meeting Jesus. And so when Jesus met him at this point, he was Levi, and Mark and Luke bring out the fact that he was Levi. But now quickly, look at Mark chapter 2. Actually, you're in Luke. We'll just turn over to Luke 5. We'll go to Luke's account, and then we'll go back to Mark's. Go to Luke chapter 5. Look at verses... Uh, um, Sorry, Luke 6, verses 12 through 16. 
In Luke 6, verse 12, in these days, he, Jesus, went out to a mountain to pray, and, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew. Do you see how Luke calls him Matthew now? And Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Go back to Mark chapter 2. Sorry, Mark chapter 3, and look at verses 13 through 19. In Mark 3, 13 through 19, we see Mark's account. And he went up on a mountain and called him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, to whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelfth, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagernes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here we see Mark and Luke call him Levi when they talk about Jesus meeting him for the first time, but then they point out that his name had been changed to Matthew when he became a follower of Jesus and was designated as an apostle. I love, though, that Matthew calls himself Matthew. You know why? He sees himself as the new creation. And I want to talk to you briefly about that. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't know what my new name is. I can't wait to find out. But at the same time, let me just tell you. All through the scripture we see that Jesus, when he met Peter, his name was Simon, he goes, you're Simon. One day you will be Peter. And then, of course, on the day that Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. He says, flesh and blood hasn't opened your eyes, but my father. And I say, you are Peter now. When we become born again, by the way, when we're born into this world, who names us? Our parents. When we become born again, Jesus gives you a new name. And it's tied to who he sees you. His finished product. Can't wait to find out what that is. Me personally, I was talking with somebody about this afterwards last night. I'm pretty sure that my new name is going to have something to do with height because I've always wanted to be taller than I am. No, and that's not painter. I, I honestly, I've always, I'm only six foot one. And now as I've gotten older, I'm shrinking because my bones are squishing and my, my discs are shrinking. And I'm probably not even six foot anymore. But here's the deal. I, I've always wanted to be tall. And I wonder if Jesus, knowing that, gave me a name that's, designates, you know, I've seen you as tall, you know, it's just how I look at it. But go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're laughing, it's hurting my feelings. But go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, you need to see yourself that way. Because have we not been talking about the fact that God knows how much faith you really have and how much you really trust him? He knows your thoughts and there's things about you that need work. Have we not agreed that we've been looking at that all night? And Satan loves to come at those times and say that God's mad. He doesn't like you. No, folks, even when we fall, he still sees the new creation. I pointed this out to you before, but in Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, this is after he's already said you're Peter. But he calls him by his old name because he's getting his attention because he's going to look like the old guy for a few days. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat, but I prayed for you. That's why a lot of our translations say Simon, even though it doesn't say Simon in the original text, but that you is singular. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. Peter's response, as you've heard me say over and over, is, I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I'll die for you. Listen to what he says next. I tell you, Peter. You double check me. He says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. I love that. He calls him by his new name when he points out that he's going to fall. Folks, don't listen to the enemy when he tries to beat you up and make you feel, I know there's something you struggle with, Mark. Don't listen to the enemy. You're a new creation. Jesus sees the finished product. Don't listen to the enemy lie to you. Oh, and we need to also keep that in mind as we look at everyone in the world. Whether they're saved or unsaved, that's the only issue. Either they're in Christ or they're not in Christ. Go back in this passage to verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 14. 
For the love of Christ controls us. Some of our translations say compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once, uh, once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, he says, we don't see anybody as human anymore. We used to see Jesus as just human. We don't do that anymore. Therefore, when now we see the world, we see that they're either in Christ or they're not in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Did you catch that? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Yet, how often do we look at the lost world and judge them and hold their trespasses against them? Actually, we should see people as Jesus did. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go back to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verses 35 through 37. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. How did he see all these people? Harassed, helpless. And they, 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 they're like sheep without a shepherd. By the way, if you know anything about sheep, how are they going to do with no shepherd? They're going to, they're going to die. Uh, they don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to protect themselves and watch out for danger. They're just, they're helpless. Go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Here's another episode. But again, he sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. Go to Mark chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 3. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I love this passage of scripture. Do you know God knows if you've eaten or not? And do you know whether or not he knows how long it's been since you've eaten? Do you know what he also knows whether or not you've got a long journey ahead of you or whether or not you've got a tough day tomorrow, whether or not you need? He already knows. He already knows. I'll, I'll be honest with you. There have been times in my life that I've had a really good day of eating. You ever had one of those? I've had a few. <laughs> but there have also been days right after that that because of my schedule, I really didn't have time to eat. And I look back and I say, Lord, thank you for yesterday given me enough to keep me going through today. You knew that it was going to be like that. He knows. He cares. But when he sees people, he sees them as either children of God or children of the devil. And by the way, how does Satan feel about his kids? He ain't for you. Remember that? He's not for you. If you're a child of God, if you're a child of God he's for you. If you're a child of Satan, Satan's not for you. All right, let me just say, if you're a child of God, God's for you. And he loves you. But if you're a child of Satan, Satan's not for you. Now, listen closely. We all have to be careful because we don't look at people like Jesus did. Let's be honest. We see the lost world. We see the Muslim terrorists. We see all these people. We see the gay pride stuff going on, and we get angry. And how could they be like that? They're sinning. No, you don't see them as Jesus does then. They're helpless. They don't know any better. They're doing the best they can. Folks, let me just tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. 
if there were no God, and this is all there is to the world, I'd be living for self right now. It would be survival of the fittest. I would be living that way. Living for pleasure, trying to store it up, trying to stay alive as much as I can. I'd be doing Botox, whatever it took. I'd be trying to get better. Listen, that's how they look at the world. That's how they look at the world. They don't believe that there's a God. Even though they know it, they are suppressing that truth. They're living as if this is all there is. You shouldn't be upset with them. They're sheep without a shepherd. And you need to have compassion on them. Love them. Eat with them. Jesus never approved of their sin. He never said, it's okay, like they think he says. You know, go and sin no more, he said to the woman caught in the act of adultery. But he didn't condemn her. And you and I need to see ourselves as God sees us, and we need to see everybody in the world how God sees them. We should not regard anybody according to the flesh anymore. Oh, and by the way, that also means that if your brother and sister in Christ is in Christ, and you see them act in ways that aren't very Christ-like, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Well, Jim, shouldn't we point out their sin? The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if you see your brother caught, like snared in a transgression, in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. Not everybody, just those who are spiritual, and after we've already checked ourselves and our motives. Actually, most of the time, the Bible says, don't mess with each other. God's doing His work. Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Folks, start seeing people the way God does. Christians who are in Christ, they're a new creation, and God's going to finish what He started. People that are outside of Christ, they're lost. They're lost. Now, I don't have the time to read these to you because we're about out of time. i got three minutes left. Write these scriptures down. Because some people think that this God of compassion that Jesus showed was a New Testament God. Mm -mm. Write down 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 16. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 16. The scripture says that even though the nation of Israel was wicked and these kings did these things, things, and lists all their wickedness, God in His compassion kept sending them prophets in His mercy and His grace until it was the point in the time for judgment. And Jonah, write this down, chapter 3, verses 10 through the end of the book, verse, chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 3, 10 through 4, 11 is where God sends Jonah to preach to the Ninevites and He says uh, God's going to bring judgment. Well, they all repent and so God doesn't bring the judgment and Jonah gets mad. He's sitting up on the hill watching to see God judge him because he wants to see those wicked people punished. And there are too many Christians that have that mindset. They can't wait until the day when those people are going to be judged. You don't have the heart of God. You better check, make sure that Jesus is in you. Because if Jesus is in you, your attitude would be like Stephen while they were stoning him. And he'll say, Lord, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Just like Jesus cried on the cross. And Jonah was mad. And he said, that's why I didn't go on to go preaching when you called me back in my hometown. That's why I went the whole other way. Because I knew you were a God that was forgiving and merciful and compassionate and tender. And then God has this plant grow up. Give him some shade. And he's like, hey, I like this. And then God, within 24 hours, has that plant die because he has a, a worm come and eat it. And Jonah's so mad. He says, Matt, I'm so mad. I'm, I'm willing to die. And God says this. And you can double check me in chapter 11. He says, do you have compassion? on so chapter 4, verse 11. You had compassion on that plant that didn't even last for 24 hours. Shouldn't I have compassion for these 120,000 people who don't know their left from their right. And then he goes on and says something crazy, which I'll be honest with you, I don't fully understand yet. He says, and much cattle. That's just weird. But there's something to it. And I don't, I'm meditating on that still. I don't know. But he says, look, shouldn't I have compassion on these 120,000 Ninevites who don't know their right hand from their left? Folks, let me ask you this question. We need to understand that Jesus came to call the sick, not the righteous. But you do know, though, that there's no one righteous, right? We're all sick. And our prayer should be that they come to realize their sickness. And all we're to do is to love them and to point them to God and point them to His love and how He's already paid for their sins. And the only way they can be reconciled is through what Jesus has done. But love them, love them, love them. Never approve of their sin, but let them know that you care for them. Let them know you care for them. It's God who opens the eyes and the hearts of sinners and shows them their guilt, not us. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, you can look at it later on. Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict them of their sin, their need for righteousness and the coming judgment. Folks, our job is to love them 
and lovingly point them to the only one who can help them. That's all we're to do. Jesus didn't come to call the people that think they don't need him. He came to call those who need him, which is all of us. But the sooner we realize that, the better. I think he said it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn because they're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they'll be filled. Oh, hang on. This ties to you too. You've been saved. You're a child of God. He sees the new creation. But you still got some work to do. Correct? You still need to daily say, I need you then. I need you. I am still, even though you've made me spiritually a rich man. And everything that I need for life and godliness is mine. There's still areas of virtue, knowledge, self-control, whatever. Lord, I need you today. Whatever it is you're working on with me today, I surrender to it. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.